Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk, or I guess kind of Cameron Hurley back in the house after having been here uh, only a mere few weeks ago, but she's uh, flying in formation tonight with our Southern California gentleman who we'll get to in just a minute. Cameron Hurley is the author of The World Breaker Saga, which began with The Mirror Empire and continues with Empire Ascendant out this week. Her previous work, The Bell Dame Apocrypha, has received critical acclaim and won some awards. She's won two Hugo Awards for her nonfiction work. Welcome back, Cameron. Thank you, Justin. The gentleman from Southern California is none other than Matt Wallace. His debut novel, The Next Fix, came out in 2008, followed by Failed Cities in 2012. He's published short stories all over the place, a novella serial called Slingers, and most recently, like now, a novella series from... <laughs> A novella series from Tor.com titled Sin Du Jour, beginning with Envy of Angels. He used to be a professional wrestler and uh, did some combat instructing. Now he's a writer, as you do. Welcome, Matt. As you do, yes. Thank you for uh, for having me on. I also didn't hear Hurley thank me for sharing my promo time with her at any point, but that's fine. Yeah, I know. That was kind of my thing. Remember? Not a big deal. Justin, yeah, yeah, he's going to have to like put up with like the Hurley machine, and I don't know if he's up for that. It's Thunderdome time, so I don't know if Matt's up for it. We're going to have to find out. <laughs> See, you start, you're, you're buying into your own bullshit now. You're starting to think way too much of yourself. And that's the perfect time to take you down right that's there. When exactly. You're, when you're they're believing just like, your yeah. own friends. Yeah. So it's fine. I'm not worried. I got the My edge. Own dog food. Take her down. Yep. No one knows who the fuck I am. I have nothing to lose right now. <laughs> We're off to a rousing start. I think this is the new theme I'm going to go for on this show. It's like verses. It's like a like a yeah Thunderdome. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, really, like really slowly spoken rap battles that don't rhyme. <laughs> But thankfully, Matt has—you're uh, not exactly what I would call a shrinking violet of self-promotion. You are fully willing to uh, to shill yourself, which I can appreciate. No, no, I am—I'm a promo machine. And I'm shameless and always about it, but I'm honest about that, which I think yes. balances that. That's really what it is. It's the—it's the people who are not honest about how hard they're shilling themselves that really bug the, the shit out of me. So, be honest when you're full of shit. That's really—that's my my motto and my creed in life. Yeah, I've noticed the uh, the self-referential motion seems to do pretty well. Like, Sam Sykes has all these weird, bizarre ways of talking <laughs> about buying his book. It's Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we won't go into that. So, uh, I was going to say, well, don't yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Get Again, Robert and Sam, yeah. Already, already sharing my time with Hurley. You're going to bring Sykes, Andy <laughs> Brink, Robert J. Bennett, John Horn, all these other guys. And I'm not even part of that whole bit, so it does nothing for me. <laughs> So, uh, so Matt, you do live in the capital of self-promotion, which is Southern California. Uh, this is my old stomping grounds. You know, I was grew up in Southern California. I uh, did not know that. Whereabouts? Uh, the High Desert. Okay. I grew up in Barstow. Oh, Barstow. So you were uh, you're on the trail to Vegas there, which is the only reason anyone ever goes through Barstow. Uh, true. Uh, the only reason I remember Barstow is because well, the only reason anybody remembers it is because it's actually a sign in the Tommy Lee Pamela Lee sex video. <laughs> It's a little known fact. Yeah. It's actually not a sign. It's just Tommy Lee like wrote Barstow and Magic Marker on his huge dick. And it was a close up. There was no sign in Barstow. True story. Go look it up. <laughs> so you see, Fun facts to know and tell. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I grew up in Southern California. So how are things out there? Is it, is, is it still is it still nice or is it kind of shitty now? What do you think? Uh, are you talking about like topographically or politically or culturally or <laughs> 
Academically. <laughs> Academically. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's there's no more water, which is part of it. No, I mean, yeah, we're we're dying slowly out here, and nobody seems to be worried about it but me. So, but you know why? Yeah. I, why, why I left and why I'll never go back is is I felt like every every overpass at some point became like the strip mall from hell. Right. And I just I just feel so. I, there's I don't feel there's any way we can get away from people in California anymore, and let you know. I don't know, man. I when I when I came out here to, I mean, I was born out here many years ago. I'm I'm from here, and I just I took a circuitous route back to this place about five years ago. And what I really realized about L.A. when I came back out here is that it's not so much a city as this weird conglomeration of small towns all jammed up against each other. And you really get the sense that none of this was ever meant to exist out here. And I, I feel like that's in the consciousness somehow, whether people are aware of it or not. It doesn't have the same vibe as like New York or Chicago or, or like an, or like a major metropolitan kind of place because of that reason. That's just a theory I've developed anyway, but no, to get back to your original question, things are fine, Justin. They're really, they're going well out here. Glad it's all that. fine. <laughs> it's all good. It burns around him. It's fine. Um, I know. I mean, if we really want to talk about the weather, it's been horrible lately, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're, we're all concerned about the, the global warming and the drought and the fact that we have all these desalination plants and no one will turn them on and we don't know why. It's, it's very strange. Uh, I like, I like you refer to it as the global warming. I feel like that's very Donald Trumpish. The global, the global warming. warming. You're referring to Donald Trump? <laughs> Fuck you, dude. <laughs> So Cameron, uh, you live in Ohio, which is actually where my entire maternal family is from. So this is like we a have family plenty reunion. Of water. We have plenty of water. In Ohio. <laughs> I'll have you know, I will have you know, Wallace, that in Ohio, it's set to be 40% wetter than in records in times past with global climate change. So we're awesome. We're going to be fine while all you guys die and shrivel away just like in the water knife. And we're totally going to live here on our cheap land with our cheap stuff. <laughs> And we'll be fine. We'll have you know. You're like annoyed by all the water you have. You wake up and you're just like, oh my God, it's so wet today. I left, I left Washington state because it rained all the time. And when I went back for two weeks in, um, uh, in August, like it did not rain once until the last night we were there. And then it poured down rain and it actually poured through the roof of our hotel room. And we had to run out of our hotel room because it was like there was a waterfall in the middle of the hotel. Yes, yeah, so we had to leave. We had to leave your, the hotel. In your so, diamond shoes that were too tight while you ate your free ice cream? <laughs> that's correct. Very right. good. Did I already Instagram about this? Is that you how did. you know well, this well? You are, you are an Instagram success. I am an Instagram success, so yeah. that's probably why. But yes, and so it was very strange to actually be out there and have like Spokane burning and all those things happening because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that was trippy, man. That was, there. that was, that was creepy. Yeah. It was. It was like the post apocalypse. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's the only reason I'm sad I didn't go. Which is which sounds really fucked up. <laughs> I wanted to see Spokane on fire. That's the only reason I'm sorry I missed one. I wanted to experience what it'd be like play being in Fallout for real. But, yeah. But, but here's the thing about that Worldcon. So we all thought like what we would remember is the sad puppy debacle, but what we'll really remember is the weird, bizarre post apocalyptic setting. I think we'll be Yeah, I don't even remember what happened during the con. I just remember everything smelling like barbecue for three days yes. straight. Which is really fucked up when you can't get any barbecue in Washington. You can't, no, there. I was like, I want some. Can we find a barbecue place? I'm like, no, dude, you're in Spokane, Washington. We'll just, Kansas, a you gotta wait till here. next year, Kansas City. Kansas City, yeah, man. Yeah. We've talked about that. That's the only reason me and my uh, my significant other want to go. It's for the barbecue. That's hey, that's why I'm going. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. So, uh, so I, I can't help but while we're on this podcast thing, Matt, uh, talk yeah. about 
the, the podcast thing that kind of got, I don't know if you want to say it launched your kind of career, but it seems like it did. Like, oh no, it absolutely did. I have no problem saying that. My, my, my whole career owes, it, owes its life to podcasting. That's what originally got me going in, in fiction and in uh, screenwriting as well. So I, that's, that's totally cool to say. Okay. So, but I, I was not conscious of, of whatever was going on when this podcast fiction thing was like super hot. Right. Well, that's, I mean, you, you were like many other people who weren't, which is why we were never able to monetize it back then, Justin. That's exactly why. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't quite mean it that Thanks, way. Thanks, Justin. I just I'm meant- saying you specifically, it is your fault. If you had been aware of it back then, we could have made something out of it. What, you oblivious bastard. What I meant was, I didn't get in, I didn't pay attention. I wasn't involved right. in genre until like 2011, 2012, which uh, I think it was a couple years before that when this all sort of really kicked off. It was a big deal for a while. I mean, a lot of people were listening to stories via podcast that aren't necessarily anymore, right? I mean, I definitely think it's become a generational thing. Um, that that first generation of podcast fiction is something not a lot of people who are into it now are aware of. And a lot of people from that. And it's so weird to say generation. We're literally talking a matter of a few years. Because um, I started doing it in 2006. 2005, 2006 was like, was like the first wave. And, uh, you know, since then... I, it's it's like completely different worlds now. It's you still have podcast fiction. I mean, like Scott Sigler is like literally the only guy I'm aware of who's still doing it that was doing it back then on any level that matters. Um, but yeah, you just had you have totally different audiences and a totally different generation of authors who were who were doing it back then as opposed to now. So that's strange for me to watch. And I'm out of it. I don't really I don't do podcast fiction anymore. So I'm not I'm not even as cognizant of what the scene is like now as I was back then. Do you think some of the erosion of that is because of like the the, the rise to prominence of the podcast generally or like audible fiction and just how like Amazon came in and was like, yeah, we're just going to do this. I, I don't know. I think for a lot of us, um, originally it just, it all sort of got absorbed by the, the zeitgeist as a whole. And it became, you know, you know, audible Amazon, you had all these other things, audio fiction, there's a million different channels for that now. And I think we just all, it, it was, it was a new cool thing for a second. And then when it wasn't new and cool anymore, that burned a lot of people off. Um, who were surviving on that new cool aspect. So the rest of us just had to sort of incorporate it into our whole kind of kickback, and it just became one more aspect of everything you did instead of the focus of what you did. Uh, so speaking of mediums that are uh, less engaging, perhaps, than they once were. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, ringtone. What's up? That was, that was my alarm to remind me to come do this podcast when we were originally scheduled to do it. Uh, sick burn. So speaking of... Uh, mediums that are less engaging than they once were, Cameron, we had some big news break today that Playboy is no longer doing nudity in its magazine. And I have to feel like this is a hugely significant occurrence, right? Like this once iconic thing is no longer uh, doing the thing that it is known for being iconic for. I mean, it feels like we're in a time of great change. What do you think? Uh, yeah, so I think, as we kind of talked about uh, before we got started, it was important to kind of understand the context of where, you know, Playboy was coming from. Certainly, I have my own uh, opinions about objectification and all of that, but just as we look at it as in the cultural, uh, its own cultural context and as a artistic medium, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, it came out in like 1956 where you had the obscenity laws, uh, you had uh, the criminalization of homosexuality, um, there was the huge communist threat. Uh, there were all these things going on that were uh, incredibly conservative, and this was kind of like pushing against that, right? It was revolutionary for its time, uh, and it was certainly serving in an underserved market. 
Um, so it's very interesting to me to look at, you know, these things that we think are incredibly revolutionary for their time and how they have to now kind of switch it up in the days of Instagram and instant nudity on your phone. You can get nudes of anyone you want with a click of a button. So what sets that apart? Uh, I found it very interesting because both in my day job, you know, as a marketer and then in my writing, uh, I am constantly always looking for ways to kind of, you know, stand out, to push the envelope. And I, I've been seeing a lot of big brands doing this, having the same issues and kind of this, this crisis, <laughs> midlife crisis, if you will, uh, that Playboy is having, which is how do we, you know, retain, be true to ourselves, but a shift our, but shift what the content of what we're actually doing to be more relevant, uh, for this age. There was, uh, I was talking to a, a great, uh, an editor of a, a sewing magazine and she said, you know, all of our readership is dying. And so we're trying to find, uh, a, a kind of niches, like where, where all the young people and her idea was cosplay. Uh, she said they're actually looking at for dead serious. They're looking at. No, I um, thought you were yeah. going to say they were going to start doing nudes. So I was like, no, really? I wasn't nudes. sure. Yeah, tie it all back. <laughs> tie it all back. <laughs> You're right. Um, and she said, well, you know, because there's tons of cosplayers out there who are younger and who actually would love to, uh, you know, see articles and things about themselves in like a sewing magazine. Um, so they're kind of looking at at that. And it's very fascinating to me watching all of these different um, media have to being forced to shift and change. You know, I mean, I, I run into that all the time where, oh, you know, hey, this it's really it, like I felt like I was writing stuff, um, you know, five years ago that was totally revolutionary, marginalized, whatever. And now all of a sudden it's kind of like. I don't know. I'm, 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 I always try to stay on the, my sales certainly tell me I'm still on the margins. Um, but at the same time, uh, I feel like there's with the we need, we need diverse books campaign coming up with a lot more emphasis on diversity, on gender queer characters, um, and things like that, that I'm actually no longer like at all close to even leading. <laughs> and that I'm like, wow, the bar is really moving and I need to make sure that I'm staying ahead of that bar because that's the only way that I'm going to stand out uh, in an incredibly crowded marketplace. You really need to find your niche um, and you need to do something that's just a little bit different than everyone else. So it was certainly something I'm very aware of. And so this just kind of came as a very uh, very interesting that they were giving away, giving up something that we all saw as sort of being their very core part of their identity, doing something else, uh, and, and kind of reemphasizing, uh, what their strengths were. Part that Cameron said there, Matt, I thought was kind of interesting, which was a writer has to sort of find their niche. And yet at the same time, uh, as somebody who, as we just kind of talked about, kind of had a niche and that has now had to sort of readjust the niche, like, uh, <laughs> you can find your niche, but like, as Cameron sort of says, you have to keep constantly finding the next one, right? Like you can't just sit still. No, absolutely not. That's that. I mean, some people, I mean, here's the thing, some people, some people absolutely, they find a niche that explodes and then they never have to worry about finding another niche again. And that's they write the awesome. same book over and over. Yeah. But you know, that's like winning the fucking lottery. Yeah. So it's, that's very hard to do. You can't plan for that as a career model. You can't plan for, I'll, I'll do one thing and that'll get so popular and I have to do anything again. I, at least I can't do that. So no, you have to, I don't know, man, it's. It's really weird. Right now, I don't, I don't even know what my niche is, honestly. All I know is I don't want to do the, I, when I write something, I want the next thing I write to be totally different than the thing I wrote before. That's really all I'm kind of thinking right now. And, um, as far as how I'm, how I'm looking at releasing fiction and distribution models and all that stuff, that I, that I, I have a much clearer idea of what I want to do, but the type of stuff that I'm doing, I'm not, I'm not even sure where that's going to land yet, but yeah, you got to keep changing everything up, really. And you got to kind of look at what's out there and not, 
and not go with the grain. I want to come back to that in just a minute, uh, but I can't help but take a, a a slight logical sideways jump and look at this Playboy thing and then look at something that you know a little bit about, Matt, which is professional wrestling. Okay. <laughs> I want to see where this segue is going. <laughs> but, like, I remember being super into wrestling, like, in the 80s, right? Right. The last traditional era of the, of the product. Right. Yeah. And then I remember getting into it again very much in the late 90s. Uh, the attitude during, era, yeah. right? Sort of during like the peak rock years and and that yeah. whole that whole business. But then, right when I started to get out, like that shit got crazy. Like it got hyper violent, oh, like hyper sexualized. In theory, sort of the reverse of what Playboy is doing. Like it felt this need to to keep one upping itself almost to the point where it became absurd. Yeah, it absolutely did, and it's um. That's and that's that's what it was too. It's that was also the era of the Monday Night Wars with uh, WWF and WCW, and they were they just kind of kept trying to top each other until it got pat. It got so absurd that they you know in, the, in recent years they reversed it completely and gone back to the kind of the G rated or PG thirteen era as they call it. It reminds me a little bit of Grimdark and sort of right. this phenomenon that we're seeing within genre, Cameron, where. Uh, uh, we're doing it in genre too. This constant need to go higher and higher and higher and higher, and then I think now sure. we're kind of starting to backtrack again. Yeah. I well, again, so. it, yeah. You uh, no. Well, and I I see some of it uh, with uh, my books, right? With Mirror Empire, where people are kind of like, you know, we're this is really depressing, and we're kind of done. <laughs> really, I don't do that. Yeah. I don't do that. That's so weird. I, I don't get that at all. There's some of it, and 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 it's it's not everyone, right? There's still a very big market for it, um, but there is certainly, and and I had heard this uh, quite a bit as you know, we're deeper and deeper into, you know, things are still not getting better. <laughs> so it really sucks, like culturally. And so I think that we are kind of looking for kind of these happier, more hopeful stories. The conversation has certainly gone sort of in that way. I think you look uh, Sorcerer to the Crown, Uprooted, um, the Goblin Emperor, those are a little bit more hopeful uh, sorts of fantasy stories. And that doesn't mean that, oh, Grimdark's over, whatever. There's always going to be a niche where there's always going to be people who love it. I love tragedy. It's a wonderful. Um, I have a great time with it. I love, I love dark stuff. It's very cathartic to me, but it's not for everyone. And I do think that there's certainly going to be a way to, because again, when the whole market becomes one thing, like just, just as Grimdark was a, a pushback against the happy go lucky fantasy, the Shannara, you know, endless Shannara books. Um, I think that what's happening is now, now the field has become like grimdark is the norm. Like that's what people think of it as. Right. So if you can push back at that, then your niche is that how you market it and you set yourself apart is saying, well, I'm not, you know, this dark, grim, horrible, gut wrenching thing. I'm going to give you hope for humanity. And suddenly people go, Oh, that stands out. And so that's your marketing message and you go out. Um, so I think that that's some of it certainly is that the market's been so glutted, right? With the Game of Thrones knockoffs. It's like this. Yeah constant i mean literally everything is game of thrones um and people are specifically buying with that in mind and i think people it just you oversaturate the market uh ya has been that way with dystopia as well you get so many in there it becomes incredibly hard to stand out you have to start telling a different story or tell it a new way or have a new hook or something like that so yeah, but yeah. Not, i mean that's the thing though it's not grimdark it's really everything it's when when the next thing becomes big then that becomes the thing that oversaturates the next it's, thing yep 
it, it happens in like, publishing. Yeah, it's like yeah. In, in movies or anything. It's there. Yeah. Everybody's always. It's so hard to make money doing this that when when something blows up really big, everybody begins chasing that thing, trying to get as much dollars out of it as they can. So, mm-hmm. Grim Dark was just a really depressing example of that. Uh, yeah, and and people are saying it with superhero movies now too. They say you know we might get a few more years out of it, but it's gonna we're, we're oversaturating. So yeah. So speaking of a lighthearted turn, it's interesting, Matt, how your new novella series, uh, the Sin Du Jour books that are, that are, that are coming out, is it next week? Uh, the first one is, uh, yeah, a week from tomorrow. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, uh, the 20th of October. Yes. And these are clearly being positioned. If you look at the covers and you look at sort of the message around them, like they are fun. They are. It's, it's been, um, it's, it's interesting because that, I, I really did kind of, when I got, I, when I had the idea, it wasn't, I didn't have a flavor for the idea. I just had a concept. But as I started writing it, it really was kind of a reaction to everything being so goddamn serious and depressing all the time. I just wanted to write something that was fun. And not that there aren't serious notes in the book or deep notes in the book or characterization or, or everything that a good story should have, but I just, I wanted to write something that people would read and have a good time and just not be, not be depressed as hell about it. And that's definitely, definitely was a reaction to the climate around it. I will say it surprised me how the humor has become such a big, I don't consider myself like a comedy writer, but in fact, I always thought I kind of sucked at that because writing, writing funny things is very hard to do. Uh, but yeah, everything lately has been focusing on the humor of the book, which I guess people are enjoying, which, you know, I guess shows you there's a, there's a need for it out there. At least I hope there is because I have to sell the goddamn book. But yeah, that, that, that was, that was a total response to, I want to sit down and I just want to write something that's really fun and that entertains me and makes me laugh. And, you know, that, that's how I responded to the whole grim dark thing. Humor is really hard to do in fiction. <laughs> Insanely. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, I honestly think comedy writing is one of the hardest, if not the hardest types of writing to undertake. Just being, being funny intentionally when you mean to is, being conversationally funny is a completely different thing, and I, I can do that, and I don't have any problem with it. But when you go, when you sit down and you go, okay, I'm going to make people laugh. This sentence here, this is going to be the killer. Just structuring something like that is very, it's it's really difficult. Yeah, I talked to uh, Robert Jackson Bennett about that once, and of course his Twitter feed is hilarious, but he he, tell you, he said he tried to write comedy and it turned into like the most fucked up. Oh, I can't. Like, oh, I can't imagine. Horror. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah, I. But I think that's really more about him than the craft itself. Yeah, the itself. That's fair. That's fair. Robert's pretty sick in the head. But, but no, I, I, I do think that, and I, I've always, you always see like people decrying the lack of humorism in fantasy and science fiction because, like, it's clearly a deep part of the root of the genre when you look at like, uh, uh, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide and and uh, some of those earlier works. Well, Pratchett. And then Pratt, yeah. Yeah. Anthony, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's deep in the tradition going way back. I, I honestly think we we have almost have an inability to look at more classical works and see the humor that permeates them. We, we kind of lose our perspective on things somewhat. I mean, even going back to stuff like Chaucer and just stuff way back when was really funny in a lot of ways. And no, academically, nobody focuses on that. And I feel like fantasy is almost the same way. I see a lot of humor and a lot of classic fantasy that I don't think anybody really, everybody sees the more serious side to it now. But I, I think it's always been a lynch. It should, levity should be a linchpin of any genre though, any kind of story you're doing. I think, I think you need that for balance. You really do. And I mean, it's hard, to, it's a hard thing to do well, but uh, to me, that's an essential component of any story that I write. 
You know, I had a college professor and he taught Shakespeare, just taught Shakespeare. And he said it was very frustrating when he was teaching high school because they would not let him teach the comedies. It's like the comedies are freaking <laughs> hilarious. They're wonderful. You have to do, do, do Romeo and Juliet, which you should not be teaching teen kids. No, but anyway, I had that too. I never get even right? like- and I didn't right. get that. I was like, this is terrible. It's terrible. Why? Romeo and Juliet and like Macbeth. And he's like, and it would get really awful. And he said, you know, we, they wouldn't let us teach the comedies because they uh, had innuendos about sex. Uh, <laughs> right? You can murder, you can yeah. sleep with people and murder your family, whatever. But like they had, uh, they had jokes about sex and, uh, it was, they would not teach it. And I feel like some of it is that way. People have a real thing with Piers Anthony too, because I know he's very, has his specialness um and it is it is a thing about like it especially in america in the u.s we have this real like knee-jerk reaction against like sex and sexual joking and all of these things uh and uh i don't know if that's some of it right that it's like we turn up our nose oh well that's that's not real literature let's be careful about giving the guy who named a book the color of her panties color of her pants, the exact <laughs> one that i was thinking of i know very popular books weren't they generation screwed up a generation of children that's right influenced i should say influenced a generation so much for diplomatic word yeah. although i will tell you i read every Piers anthony zanth book see uh, case in point well, i was gonna say <laughs> but i turned out okay <laughs> Okay, you can't see me making the air quotes. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the thing, but I didn't pick up on any of it. You know, like that's the thing is like there's a sure. reason that puns are considered the highest form of dad humor because you don't really get them until you are of a certain age. I don't think this whole notion of having, you know, moments of levity within a book. I mean, do you try to do that? You know, funny enough, I do. No one believes it. But what I, what I love though. Is, uh, I actually go through, and especially I've, I've had to do it with Mirror Empire, the Mirror Empire books, uh, is after I finish the book, I actually go through and I do add in humor. People don't believe it because they're like, wow, you added this in? So <laughs> I don't want to know how bad it was before. I'm like, it was real bad. Um, so I do, no, I, I have to add, yeah. yeah, you have to add in the light moments and the, the banter. There was a lot of banter because I'm paying so much, especially with those books, they're so complex. With the God's War series, there's a lot of natural banter that they would do just because they're themselves. And it was a lot tougher in this one because I was paying so much attention to the complexity of the plot, to what needed to happen, that I actually had to go back a lot of times and say, okay, now let's go pay attention to the dialogue the character interactions and put in some levity because the darkness isn't going to be dark unless you have something to contrast it to. So you need to have those, those moments of happiness and, and, uh, uh, humor so that you could crush everyone's dreams. Exactly. And also it's just a very human response. I think, I think that's how we, we, everything is so fucked up and we have to deal with so much darkness. Like we naturally process it into a humoristic way. And I don't think fantasy should be any different. And you were, Cameron, you're very funny. When I, when I tell people about your work, I, I talk about like your dark rise sense of humor and that's totally in the books. I think that's a huge think, part of them. Yeah. I, I do have very dark, but again, it's, a, it's a special kind of humor. And, uh, yeah. I, my husband, and I talk about this all the time. I watch a lot of British humor. American humor doesn't nothing for me. That slapstick in your face. I like the clever, wry, dry humor that kind of, and some of that's just how my family, again, we talk about dealing with darkness, right? When we talk about the horrible things that sort of happen to us in my family, like we make jokes about it. There's really awful stuff that we've all gone through, but we'll sit there and we'll laugh and people think like we don't feel things or we're monsters, but like that's simply just how 
we handle that kind of conflict um, because at the end of the day, you know, you got to get up the next morning and you got to go to work because you got to eat. Um, so you have to find a way to release that feeling so that you can you can function. Right. Yeah. It's, it's incredible to me. You have to explain that to anyone. I guess. Right. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah. But some people, they just, yeah, they, they see people joking in that dark humor uh, and they, they take it as that you don't feel that it's real. It's really interesting. And, but some people are much more emotional, right? They, they, they want to have their emotion right then and all of that. And I just, I don't operate that way, but some people do. I've also seen people get really pissed off at humor in darker books where they're like, this clearly doesn't belong. It's too dark. This is a dark, this is a serious book and there shouldn't be humor in it. And I think that's how life is. Yeah. I was going to say, I think those are people who can only process dark events in like a fictional context. They don't have any like real life reference point for it. They think it's supposed (laughs) to be, they think it's supposed to be all dark. They're like, it's what their perception of what it would be like. If it, yeah, I can't, if if you've been through crappy, yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to belittle anybody, but if you haven't been through that kind of shit, like humor is literally the only way to deal with it and not put a fucking shotgun in your mouth. Like, I don't know what else to say. Readers, having these preconceived notions about what something should be and, and how it, and how, I mean, we've seen no better example recently than poor Chuck Wendig's, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, just poor getting, Chuck. I, I have a great deal of empathy for what he's going through. That's the amount of empathy, man. He's got like seven different camps of people pissed off at him for a million different things that none of them make any sense. Yeah. Such is the danger of taking on a, yeah. <laughs> the court of public opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Like yeah. taking on such a beloved canon, but uh, but I think some of this, a lot of this, this this stuff we're talking about with darker elements and, and lighter elements and how they blend together. I think a lot of it comes back to and why we're sometimes we decry the lack of it, and sometimes we we readers get pissed about it being there when they don't think it should be. Is this notion that like science fiction and fantasy has this weird complex, right? Uh, I always think that like it wants to take itself more seriously than it needs to. Sometimes, I mean, what do you think, Matt? Like, I feel like we as a community, and I hate that term, but we as a community <laughs> take right. take ourselves way too fucking seriously. I think we as a community, um, we have a severe Napoleon complex, and I think that expresses itself. I mean, that's what it is because we're we're genre writers, we're we're niche writers, we're in the back of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. And they keep compressing us down into smaller and smaller sections. <laughs> like even within that, like you get like, I don't know. I've just noticed that lately. It's been, you don't even have science fiction and fantasy and horror. It's all jammed together. And like one thing that makes no sense. Damn it. We want the respect and we want the money and we want the things we think everybody else is, is getting. And so there's this need to try to elevate, not our work, but the perception of our work and the perception of us as authors. Like we're real authors. We're serious authors. And it shouldn't matter that we write, you know, fantastical things. And I mean, of course that's true, but I just, I can't see wasting time out of my day on that, on people's perception of it. Like I'm focused on, on that kind of stuff in terms of I have to sell a book and I want to sell it to as many people as possible. And you have to overcome those perceptions to do that. You know, like you don't, you don't want to be relegated to the shitty back of the bookstore section with all the genre titles into it. So I think about it in that way. But in terms of like getting people to view my work more seriously or trying to make my work more literary, whatever the fuck that means, so people see it, I, I don't I don't care about that. That doesn't matter to me. But it matters to a whole lot of other folks. And I really think it's that Napoleon complex more than anything that feeds what you're talking about. And I, I see this a lot uh, with all sorts of writers where 
it's never enough. Um, <laughs> no matter. Yeah, it's never enough. Well, and here's the thing. Like, if you are not cool with yourself and you haven't come to like a, an understanding like that, I am awesome, even though I was bullied and they were all just jerks. It's like, you are always going to be looking for the next thing that makes you better. Well, yeah, I've sold a million copies, but I haven't won an award. Or yeah, I won the National Book Award, but man, I wish I was selling more copies. Or, you know, like it's always some other thing. And I think the problem is with, with doing that is like, oh, well, now, yeah, now I've done these things, but I'm, I'm in the science fiction section. I'm not in literary fiction. So I'm not taken seriously. It's just finding this other thing that somehow you believe will make you legitimate. And I run into this a lot with people, you know, defining their own success in their careers where I'm like, if you need to define your own success because I can tell you right now that someone is always going to think you're crap. Someone is always going to try and put you down. Someone is always going to hate you. Um, no matter how good your writing is, there's going to be people who aren't going to like it. You just have to keep going. You have to decide this is what I want. And I do. I, I think it's it's very much just a lot of, hey, you know, you bullied me, but now look at me now. Look at me now. Uh, and it, it kind of gets us into trouble. So. Not me, I don't do it, but everybody else. Right, right. Everyone else except Grumpy McGrumper Pants right over here. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's we we still need to settle that. Who has yeah, the grumpier? Yeah, we do. Who is grumpier? I know. Well you just you guys are friends already. I can't I'm not gonna take his his opinion on this. <laughs> You're both against me. I'm gonna lose this argument. That's true. You'll have to come to confusion so that he can judge fairly. So I'm gonna I've I've decided. I'm gonna I'm gonna make Oh you're gonna do it. All yeah. right, good. Yeah. Yeah. Good you job, to, good job, Justin. So I'm booking. I'm booking you right now, Hurley, on Ditch Sugar's Live. Too, you got to come do it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Again, do it now, and that way, that way, I won't have anything else uh, that will be first on my spreadsheet. The magical spreadsheet. <laughs> the Almighty spreadsheet. <laughs> Cameron even makes spreadsheets at cons. That's the crazy <laughs> thing. She, makes, she has. She has a list of her no, spreadsheets. Like they give her a spreadsheet when she gets there, but she has her own. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I, I, I'm not speaking to anyone until Confusion, so I won't really be making a spreadsheet until May when, when my essay collection comes out. But so. you know when you're going to be making your next one. You know. But I know. I know uh, when I'm making the next one. Oh, is yeah. that written on a spreadsheet somewhere when you're going to make your next spreadsheet? Uh, you know, I should add that. You should. You absolutely should. Yeah, that's crucial. Yep. So, so okay. yes, we, we will have a Ditch Stickers live at Confusion. It's, it's going to be great fun. This is my, my whole thing. With Rocket Talk from here on out, is only people who are coming to confusion to be on the show. <laughs> Dude, that's called maximizing your resources. That's what everybody should be doing all the time. That's right. I'm I'm using what I'm using what little power I have. Exactly. Uh, it's Napoleon complex, I guess. Really, when you think about that's, it, that we all have, we all have it. <clears throat> so, Matt, I, after reading uh, Envy of Angels, I have to presume that you are something of a Top Chef fan. Are you, or are you not? Um, not some, I mean, yeah, I was at one point, I'd seen all the seasons up to a certain point. I haven't been following it lately. Uh, but yeah, I, I love, I love, I'm a foodie. I have no problem saying that word or admitting it. And I love cooking. I love eating. And I love, uh, I get addicted to, I get on runs where I get addicted to the food network. Like everybody does where you just watch diners, drive-ins and dives, you know, seven times in a row. I and, actually, uh, yeah, I actually think my wife would can't, would agree to cancel our cable if it wasn't for the food network. I believe it, man. It's, it's, it's the best kind of porn there is. And I include real porn in that. It's, uh, it's just amazing. But no, I, uh, that was definitely an influence, uh, on it. Those kind of, and definitely how I'm pitching it to people because that's so popular. You want to ride that coattail. Top Chef. I mean, just real quick, Top Chef aside. It is such an incredible reality show because I do not care about anything going on in that show. I really don't. I mean, I like food. <laughs> I mean, I like food. It's like, but Project Runway is the same way. Like, these are two shows in which I care nothing about the outcome, 
and yet you can't stop watching them because they're so well produced. I just oh yeah, it's, it's Nikki, my uh, my she got me into that um, into the Project Runways. I like. I here's the thing. I like any show where they make something from nothing. I don't even care what it is. Like I'll watch. I'll pretty much give any show like that a chance. And then I just get wrapped up in how they package everything. Reality show producers are dark magicians. I'm convinced they're all witches. And they just have this this special power to package what is really like the blandest narrative you could possibly have. That's what's that's what's remarkable about it. If you sold that to people as a script, I mean they're all scripted. That's the thing. They're all it's all bullshit. It's all made up, producer fed lines, scripted bullshit. But as long as you don't sell it to people like that, they're wrapped because they think it's real and you can get away with so much more things. So narratively, I find them very interesting as well. Did you know Wesley Chu's uh, sister in law is a Top Chef contestant? I did not know that. Yes. I think Beverly Kim, I think. On what see what season? Exactly. I don't, I don't I know. Have to find it. I don't know. I don't know what season. I forget. Her restaurant's name is Parachute, though. So if you're ever in Chicago, Wes is always trying to get people to go to his yes. sister-in-law's <laughs> restaurant. By the way, Cameron, do you have any reality show that you based your books on? <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, Justin. Nice segue. <laughs> No, but I, uh, I am certainly guilty of, uh, of watching mindless reality TV. You know what I watch a lot of? I watch a lot of swamp people. So watch that endlessly. Wow. Endlessly. A, it's the same. It is the same show every time. Oh, it's the one where they hunt the, uh, and the, they shoot the alligators. Yeah. Right, and they yes. no, we, the I narratively. Yep. And I love it every time. Yeah. They have the one guy who like goes by himself. He looks like kind of like a Hulk Hogan's uh, yep. meth addicted yep. cousin. Him and his and dog. His yep. dog. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like, cause they build it up as like, you need to have a team and it's a really hard thing to do. And then they have this guy, this blonde guy at a bandana who's doing it by himself. He's literally pulling the alligator out of the water with one hand and shooting it with the other hand yeah. all by himself. And you just find yourself rooting for him so much because like, damn it, that's that's just that's amazing. Well, and for me, I'm always worried about the dog, right? What will happen <laughs> to the dog? Will the dog get eaten in this episode? What's going to happen? Will the dog fall off? Oh, no, the dog's in the water. Like, again, and as you said, Matt, I, I watch them also just because you look at what kind of narrative stories they build around this very repetitive task. Yeah, it like, absolutely is. kill yeah. alligators the whole time, um, but they work really hard. At building narrative stories, and again, it's all BS. It's it's whatever. Um, but around oh, and this is this this alligator has been uh, the stories of this alligator have been in the swamp for twenty years. It's like thirteen feet long. They call him Big Head, and you're like, shut up. <laughs> it is. They're like spinning stories from nothing. So it's a really good uh, exercise in building narrative, which is uh, really fun in itself. So. It's a learning experience if you're able to look at it correctly. Well, yeah. First of all, we need to get Cameron a guest appearance on Swamp People. <laughs> I would. I would watch it all day. I would be so early good. out there. I would be great hauling in alligators. It would be great. Yeah, we'd get a big one. And second, I am extremely disappointed to learn that the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills has no influence on the Mirror Empire. <laughs> Strangely enough. Strangely enough. I thought I saw little ice road truckers in God's War. I'll just say that outright. I feel like that. I I do I do like ice road truckers as well, but they put it behind a paywall, so I'm not gonna pay for ice road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna pay for it. It better come with my Amazon Prime. If it doesn't, I'm not paying one ninety nine episode for ice road truckers. It's Early just demands free access to ice <laughs> That's road right. trucker. That's the hill you're gonna die on. <laughs> wow. That would that went in a direction I wasn't expecting, but I'm delighted by it. 
<laughs> really, when, really, when you ask what reality shows influence your fiction, you weren't sure where it was going to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, these are the great leading questions that, that make for good podcasting. I, I mean, I can certainly say no one's ever asked me that before. You got yeah. You yeah. won that. You won that contest. I will say I did notice one very tenuous similarity between uh, both of your books, and that is this concept of uh, it's something that urban fantasy does quite a bit, which is like the world behind the world, right? You know, like this this sub world that exists, which is I, I'm not entirely sure why we get so uh, aroused by it, but we get immensely not sexually, but like we get immensely. <laughs> <aroused>. Well. <laughs> But we case get by case basis. <laughs> I don't feel like you know and what. The podcast is on a roll. <laughs> don't make declarative statements. That's all I'm gonna say. But we get excited about. <laughs> so we get excited about these worlds behind the worlds, and I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why that is. Maybe Matt has a in general terms as far as like uh, the genre goes. Also, I'm just offended on Hurley's behalf that you're even comparing our books in any way. I'll just I'll just say that outright. Like she's got this wonderful, <laughs> complex, poetic, vamp, okay, listen, other dimension. Last minute edition. I'm literally. I've got goblins in a kitchen in New York, and you're comparing the two of us. No, but seriously, it's um. I I don't think it's hard to reconcile the whole the fascination with the hidden world in a contemporary story like an urban fantasy. It's because we don't like this world. We don't like the world we're in. It sucks. And we love the idea that there's this awesome world within our reach that we can't see with magic and monsters where we get to be special and we get to go on amazing adventures. That's, you know, that, that, that idea compels everyone. That's why Harry Potter is so goddamn popular. That's the, that's like the ultimate expression of that. Beyond writing the story where you have the, uh, the every boy or every girl who finds that they're the chosen one and they get to save the world and go on a fantastic adventure just exposing readers to this awesome parallel world that's existing with ours is a very attractive quality um in terms of dealing with it as a person writing the genre if you're going to do any kind of urban fantasy or any kind of fantasy in a contemporary setting there's really only two ways to deal with that i mean executionally you can do it a million different ways but Ba- the basics is you either create a world where the paranormal, the supernatural, whatever exists uh, simultaneously and it's a secret thing and people don't know about it, or you have to integrate that into the world as it exists now. Those are really your only choices uh, template wise. And I, for what I wanted to do, that just wouldn't work because I wanted to also explore the world of kitchens and chefs in a very real way as it exists now and not fundamentally change it, just have it interact with this other world. So that's why fans are fascinated with it. And that's kind of how you have to deal with it as a writer, even though you didn't ask that part. This is also what secondary fantasy, secondary world fantasy does, right? It creates this entirely uh, made up world for us to sort of go play in. But like, you weren't really satisfied with just that. Um, <laughs> In, 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 I never am. In a, in a way that only Cameron Hurley can, you've decided <laughs> to add another layer of complexity. But but your world behind the world is like actually like way more of a bummer than the actual world, right? Like that's I think that's actually kind of uh, interesting uh, to me and sort of a little subversive when you consider what Matt's talking about, where there's this deep fascination with the world behind the world. But in in this in, the, in your setting, it's it's the opposite. Like everybody wants to come to the main world. Yeah, everybody wants to come to the main world because, of course, all the other worlds are dying. There is certainly some similarity with this whole idea of wanting to explore how other worlds are different. Um, and certainly with, uh, you know, the Mirror Empire, I wanted to have a look at, okay, when you have parallel universes colliding, like, how did the character, how are the characters different? 
uh, in all of these different worlds. I mean, that's certainly a, a big thread with a lot of fantasy. I mean, like every single fantasy and science fiction show pretty much has like the evil twins from the parallel universes meeting. You know, there's always that episode. Every single one has it because it fascinates us. Um, we find it to be an absolutely uh, interesting thought experiment. You know, what if there was one single change in my life that was different? How would the whole world have changed? How would I have changed? Um, How would I have the goatee? Really? Exactly. Like, you don't even know. You don't even know. <laughs> we have to explore this in fiction. So, Matt, this is now uh, the second sort of novella series that you've done. Uh, yes. Because you, you have your Slingers series. Is that still ongoing, or are you done with that? I am done with that. I finished that at the end of uh, last year. All right. So this is your second novella serial, if you will, or, or series. Either way. What do you think is going on with the novella? Like, is is this the new hot thing? Are people going to get more into this? Or do you feel like it's just kind of like... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I certainly fucking hope so. <laughs> like, I'm trying to sell it to them on a mass level. So I hope they get way the hell into it. I hope it becomes the new hot thing. What's great is I'm finally... And this, this is half joke, half serious. Like, I've never gotten to the thing at the right time in my career. And this seems to be the one instance where I'm at the ground level of something. So I'm really hoping it takes off and I get to enjoy that really good first wave of money before it becomes way oversaturated. So I'm really hoping that happens. But um, I, the thing is, I started doing it at the beginning of uh, uh, Slingers was uh, self-published or author-published as we've, we're trying to class up the, the term. Um, and I started doing that on my own at the beginning of 2014 because it just, on a professional level, the model makes more sense for authors, particularly genre authors, because you're taking what's essentially one or two very long books and chopping it up into, into these individual pieces and selling them individually as, as books on their own. So what you get out of that is, uh, increased revenue or increased revenue for less time and energy spent writing a thousand page tomb. And you're also giving that story more time to grow and build an audience over time. And it's a fantastic model because there's just so, there's so short attention spans and so little money to be had at this point in publishing in this arena, the model just makes a lot more sense for all authors. I think, um, creatively, I, I really enjoy, and I've, I've always enjoyed novellas and serials, you know, going back all the way back to the pulp era. Cause I mean, this is nothing new. We're not, we're not, we're not inventing anything here. We're really just taking something that used to be very popular and trying to make it popular again in a modern context. <clears throat> and the other reason I started doing it was because, just independently of that, I started to see readers' habits change. Like people, a lot of people are really getting into novellas, uh, the length of them, because they suit their lifestyles and their schedules and the time they spend reading. You know, I, uh, the, I had kind of a, a moment where I went into a knife shop and I was talking to this guy who engraves knives and he was telling me, uh, when he has these all night engraving sessions, he'll listen to like eight or nine novellas in a row and he just likes that link because he can go through so many of them and they're great for the amount of time he spends on each project and stuff. And I just, I really started seeing that become a thing. So it just makes sense for authors and readers at this point in time. And I'm really hoping that that kind of gels and creates a huge commercial bonanza and I get to make a bunch of money doing, writing these stories that I really enjoy writing. Before I follow up on that, I want to know more about your knife engraver. Is this like your knife engraver or just like a knife engraver? I mean, he's, you know, I have, I, I have a knife guy. If, uh, if you live the life I live, you, you'd understand why. But, um, no, no, he's, it's what he, he's, 
there is a knife shop that I frequent that is like my knife shop where I go to do knife business, and he's the guy who runs it, and he also engraves things for people. Okay. Seriously, I could have done the whole show on Matt, on Matt Wallace and his knife guy. I don't know why, but I'm fascinated by this. I'll come back. I can bring him on. He's a really fascinating dude. He knows a lot of that stuff. That would be people. a cool podcast. That would. Yeah. And you know, Matt uh, Wallace and his knife guy. I like it. Anyway, Cameron, we've been I've been bugging you about a novella. What's up? What do you think about the novella? Oh, I love I love the form. It's uh, at this point, it's finding the time when I'm contracted for other stuff. You know, and I, I pitched I pitched Nick's novellas to Tor.com, and they said no because originally Are you serious? They, oh, I'm that dead sucks. serious. They said no, I know, right? They wanted well. And this is for when initially launching the line. They said maybe later, but um, they really wanted uh, original fiction. No, and that um, makes sense. Which makes sense. Yeah. We're really, I, I get trying to, we're really trying yeah. to get away from the idea of novellas as ancillary content. Yeah, and that's exactly. a whole other, that's a whole other battle we're fighting. So yep. I completely understand it. But I goddamn it, I want to read Nick's novellas. <laughs> yes, yeah, so every time I mention it online, I have like all these fans who are like, "Oh my gosh, please yeah. write this." That's certainly on my on my plate of things that I would really like to do. Mainly because again, it's dialogue and fight scenes and fun witty banter and cutting off heads and they're just fun to write. Uh, and I think that that length for a Nick's novella, uh, length is just, is perfect. It's perfect for, for those folks. So I really like it. I like the form. I think that again, uh, everything, you know, Matt had said about, uh, you know, how it could kind of be its own thing, um, about how people can read them very quickly. All of that is certainly, uh, you know, in its favor right now. And, uh, so yeah. So it's on my plate. It's something that I'm looking at. It's a form I'm interested in. Uh, I always have written long short stories. Been very much hampered. I felt by everything had to be under ten thousand words, or and because after you know there's that there was that middle length that you could never sell between you know and oh, yeah. novellas were so difficult. There was like no market for them for a long time. So I'm excited to to kind of jump into it once I get all these other deadlines off my back at some point. So because <laughs> yeah. the, the danger of this, of course, Cameron, is that. You will not. See, at this point, you may never not have deadlines because you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get halfway through these contracts yeah, and you're gonna sign more. I know. Yeah, and I, I'm trying. I'm I'm feeling at this point. I'm telling myself, you know, I will never do this again. Like this was stupid. Three books this year was dumb, and it literally literally took me to the edges of my sanity, possibly over the edges, actually, uh, if I'm being technical. Um, so it's not a great idea and I would like to try to be smarter going forward and being like one book a year and maybe like a novella a year would probably be more sane. <laughs> so, so it's another, that's another thing too, is that if you look at it as, uh, you know, against as someone with a day job like me, where if I can only do one book a year and novella is a really nice addition so that you have still two things coming out, uh, but it's not, again, as much of a, a strain kind of on the writer. So, yeah, uh, this year was really bad. But next year, I only have to write one book next year. It's it's incredible. It's That'll amazing. Change. There's no one way that's Wait, only one? How's that possible? You are, you are not going to make it in 2016 writing only one book. That's completely Yeah. The third no, World Breaker book? Uh, the third World Breaker book. Yep, that's it. That's all I got to write next year. Don't and then I need to... the second book from Saga? Uh, I don't have to start that until... That doesn't come out until 2018. So I don't have to start that until, or that just come out until 20. Anyway, it comes out after that. So I don't have to worry about writing that. Until <laughs> I will after bet I you the Listen, I will bet you $20 right here and now that you do not just write one book next year that you write. Well, one book. Here's my thing. Someone's got to pay me a lot of freaking money 
to make me write two books. That well, then you can afford to lose so, the bet I just made you. So somebody, you're I was going to say, so yeah, if they want to pay me real money, like some of my colleagues have been being paid, then yes, I will totally write another book. Uh, but until I'm making that, making that cheddar, then, uh, then no. <laughs> no. Wow. My God, never say that again. Never say <laughs> That's that. staying in. <laughs> Justin's like, not putting that one. Cameron making cheddar early. <laughs> Here's my thing, though. It's like I get I, people, uh, you know, I hear this all the time about being mercenary and, oh, you should write for the love of it and blah, blah, blah. But like, man, wow. when you're as busy, when you get so busy, I mean, there's the whole eating thing, which is great. But it's also <laughs> I like to eat. I like to pay for my drugs. But there's this whole thing where like you when you get so busy and someone comes to you and says, oh, I would love to have a book from you. I'll pay you $5,000. And eventually you're just going to be like, no, I can't. I do not have the time to write you a book $5,000. Like, and, and, you know, unfortunately that's still like the first advance that a lot of people not, you know, will come out with. So, so, you know, we're kind of at that point where me and my agent sit down when people come to us and we're just like, it's not worth it. I'm sorry. It's unfortunate and it sucks, but you know, we, we actually need to be paid real money (laughs) to make the, to make these things work in the schedule as it is right now. So, and that, you know, might, thing I might change my mind is is that happens but for right now because I am contracted until 2018 um I have to really kind of pick and choose you know who I partner with and what projects I take on so we'll see I have a sit down with my agent uh early next year and we're going to go over some projects that I want to work on and some projects to pitch so uh we'll see what happens but and again I would I would love to be not contracted for a little bit at least that's how I feel right now but that's because I have a book due in two weeks so and Matt, you have what? I think you're under contract now for five Sindijor novellas. For four, I'm four. contracted for four. I've planned seven in the series, and they've uh, they bought the first two, and then just recently they bought the the third and the fourth book. So I, they will be releasing all through uh, next year. And what else you got? What else you got working on? I heard I have I heard word that you've got another project in the works, but I don't know if you're probably not talking about it yet, but. I mean, I'm working on uh, my first epic fantasy uh, novel. It's actually going to be the longest book I've ever written by by a wide margin. I um, I recently signed with a new agent, uh, Don One Song of uh, Howard Morehame uh, Literary, and I'm very happy about that. He's a cool dude, and uh, hope we're going to do big things together. So I'm finishing a new book that he will be taking out, um, and that should be done in the next month and a half here. I have to deliver the third signature book by the 1st of November and then finish this novel I'm working on before Thanksgiving. So I've got two books to finish in the next month and a half. Good old Dong Wan, the guy who uh, bought the Expanse series. Oh, yeah, yeah back when he was uh, when back when he was an editor, yes. Oh, he has wow, yeah. a lot of experience doing that. That was one of the reasons I was so excited to work with him. He's, he, he's, he has very good taste. He has excellent taste. I mean, obviously, he signed me. Clearly. He's very good taste. I, I'm a big fan of, of his work. Glad to hear that. And uh, as, as, as we know, Epic Fantasy is, uh, is the thing that, that sells a lot when it sells. I guess. Honestly, it's, it's the strangest thing because when I started this book, that had nothing. I wasn't thinking about I honestly wasn't thinking about any of that. I just wanted to write one because I liked them and I'd never done one before. But then we flash forward to now and I'm talking to my agent. He's like, yeah, man, that's what I want. That's what's going to that's what's going to be selling the next. So I have again, I've actually positioned myself well for a change after 10 years in this fucking business. I'm actually at the forefront for a change. So we'll see if I can capitalize on any of it. But that it worked out nicely. And I like that it was something that I didn't plan because I don't I don't believe in writing books on trend or for the like that never works out. So this is just something I happen to do at the right time. 
10 years sounds about right, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Everybody right. has that story. Everybody's a 10 year overnight sensation. That's mm-hmm. right. All right. Well, this was, uh, this was fun. We learned about uh, Matt Wallace and Cameron Hurley tonight about uh, Empire Ascendant, which is out, and uh, Matt Wallace's Envy of Angels, which is out next week, October the 20th. Yes, sir. And uh, the next book, Lost Lock, will be out uh, January 26th of next year. Which, by the way, is a phenomenal, (laughs) sexy cover. Yeah, that's uh, a great cover. No, Iron Gallo and uh, Peter Lutchin and the whole team over there, they're doing they're doing a really great job with the series. Like it's nothing I ever would have envisioned on in any way, shape or form. But every time they come up with a new cover for this series, it's just perfect. And it gets people talking in the right way. Mm -hmm. And you can't you can't under undervalue that. Like people don't give enough credence to covers and the books that they sell. Well, I want to congratulate you on writing what appears to be the first like Reptirotica book. Um, and you know what? I can't deny that. I'm not going to go into it now. We can. I'll come back on and talk about it when we're close to release. But that's actually accurate. I can't. I can't, I can't even get around it. Uh, I support it. I support it. Well, thank you both so much for coming on tonight. Thank, thank you. you, Justin. This has been Rocket Talk. 